Well, now I expect you thought Christmas was over, didn't you? And it is, of course. It's become the custom to think about Epiphany, the, the uh, visit of the wise men, on the first Sunday of the new year. But Dan was preaching last Sunday, and I wasn't able to give you that message then, so I've brought the visit of the wise men this morning, the Feast of the Epiphany, because it seems to me that there are really important lessons to learn from the visit of the wise men. And it has to be said, of course, that their arrival wasn't good news for everyone. Indeed, when you consider what happened, it probably wasn't good news for anyone. After all, if, if they hadn't alerted Herod to the fact that a new king had been born, maybe Jesus, Mary, and Joseph wouldn't have had to become refugees in Egypt, and even more crucially, that terrible, appalling massacre of the boys in Bethlehem wouldn't have taken place. It echoes down the centuries, doesn't it? A voice is heard in Rama, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. It's a terrible part of the Christmas story that just as we meet God's love and God's giving of himself in Christ, so we meet pain and suffering. And just how graphic that pain and suffering is is amply illustrated by what's going on as I speak now in Gaza. I'm not going to make any political points. That's not what I'm here for. seems to me that both sides have decided that the only way forward is violence, and that's a tragedy in itself. What is it? Nearly 800 people? Men, women, and children? Many, many Palestinians and some Jews? Slaughtered? What an appalling dreadful thing. A voice is still heard in Rama, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And I suppose every sensitive soul has asked, why does God allow such awful things to happen? Why? In a sense, of course, it's a pointless question. How on earth could a limited human understanding get to grips with a cosmic mystery? And in saying that, I'm not trying to duck the question or accusing or criticizing anyone for asking it. I'm just saying that suffering like death is part of human life and there's no avoiding it. Came across an Arab legend the other day. Don't usually come across Arab legends, but came across this legend of a merchant who sent his servant into the marketplace. And not very long after, the servant came back, pale and agitated. Trembling, he said to his master, Master, lend me a horse, lend me a horse. When I went down to the market just now, a woman jostled me. I, I turned round and I saw it was death. She made a threatening gesture. Lend me your horse so I can, I can go to Samara and hide there and she won't find me. So off he went in great haste. Not long afterwards, the merchant himself went down to the market and he found death standing there. So he said, uh, what do you mean by frightening my servant? Making threatening gestures, terrifying the wits out of him. Oh, said death, that was merely a reflex action. I, I was surprised to see him in Damascus because I've got a, an appointment with him this evening in Samara. 
It's inevitable. It is an inevitable part of life. Louis Armstrong may sing, it's a wonderful world, and so in countless ways it is. But Rachel is still weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Over the years, a scrap of dialogue in a very precious book has meant more and more and more to me. It's a letter. A letter written by a man who had an insoluble problem, and he'd taken his predicament to several ministers in turn, and most of them, well, all of them, in fact, hadn't really bothered to listen. And so he wrote this to a friend. On the bad days when you could weep with the pain, to whom do you as a Christian turn? Naturally, you turn to your minister, who you hope will accept you as you are and listen to you as long as you want to cry on his shoulder, who won't interrupt you with ready-made answers or sickening slaps on the back, who, and this is the important bit, who, even if he offers no cure, will at least offer care. Yes, you turn to your minister, and if you know in advance that he will give you what you need, the limitless sympathy of a caring pastor, then you're a lucky man indeed. Now, over the years of my ministry, I have made many mistakes, too many, really, to count. But probably the worst is to seem to appear to be too busy. Actually, I, I am by nature very lazy, but I just appear to be too busy. I'm good at that. I want you to know, friends, that no matter how busy I appear to be, I have always, always got time for you. That is the most important part of my ministry. I said at church meeting on Thursday, that uh, Thursday morning, when we have pop-in, um, I'm usually around, either surreptitiously eating cakes in the lounge or in my office. One Thursday a month, I have to go over to the Balkan babes, I call them, um, the Balkan mums and tods, one Thursday a week, uh, sorry, a month. But normally, on a Thursday morning, I'm available here. And Thursday evening, for that hour before the church meeting and the church prayer meeting before house groups from 7 to 8, then I'm here as well. But of course, if you want to come and see me at other times, make an appointment. I, I always carry my diary with me to the back of the church after the service so that if we can have a short chat there, I can make an appointment. But I want you to know that no matter how busy I seem, I've got time. You see, what the man with the problem wanted was someone who was prepared to open themselves to his suffering and share it. More than solutions, he wanted a human being to understand what he was going through. And of course, you don't have to be a minister to do that. But you do have to possess the capacity to feel someone else's pain. And the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus can feel our pain. Because God's word says we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The fact that God became part of the world as a human being means that he's involved with everything that human life 
brings. And the wonderful thing is that not only is he involved, he can transform it. William Temple, the great post-war Archbishop of Canterbury, put it like this. There cannot be a God of love, people say, because it was because if there was, his heart would break. And the church points to the cross and says it did break. It's God who made the world, people say. It's he who should bear the load. And the cross, the church points to the cross and says he did bear it. That's the gospel. Now, one of the current buzzwords is accountability. Politicians are supposed to be accountable to their voters. The police are accountable to the public. Teachers are accountable to the parents of their students. To whom is God accountable? Well, he is accountable to no one. Actually, we are all accountable to him. But that's not what the world thinks, is it? Most people want to blame God when things go wrong. We've even made it part of our judicial system. When something happens for which no one is responsible, we say it's an act of God. So who was to blame for the slaughter of the innocents? Was it the wise men, having alerted Herod that a new king had been born? Maybe it would never have happened if they hadn't have let the cat out of the bag. Or should we load the blame fairly and squarely on Herod's shoulders? After all, he gave the order, so he is to blame. So who is to blame for all the suffering in the world? Years and years ago, there was a wonderful book published. It was called Prayers of Life by a, a Roman Catholic, French Roman Catholic priest called Michel Coist. And in it, he asks that question, who is to blame, Lord? And God answers like this. He says, son, sin is disorder, and disorder hurts. You, human beings, have brought disorder and suffering into the world by bringing in sin. But I have taken your sin, and I have suffered its consequence, and in doing that, I have transformed it. You see, that is a symbol we cherish. That video that we had earlier on was all about the cross. And the cross is a wonderful symbol. It's a symbol of forgiveness and grace and mercy. When we look at the cross, we, we, we remember the fact that our sins were paid for on the cross. And we rejoice, as, as Ron was praying earlier on. He cried, it is finished. It's done. To us, the cross is, is a symbol beyond comparison. But actually, if you, can, if you can transform that cross in your mind, think of it as a, as, as a, as a gallows. Think of it as, as an upright and a crossbeam and a rope with a noose. Think of, think of it like that. That is what it is. It's an object, it's an instrument of execution. And the glorious thing about the gospel is that God has taken that terrible, cruel symbol and he's transformed it into the means of grace. It was G.K. Chesterton who wrote to the Times replying to someone who'd asked who was to blame for what was wrong in the world. And his answer was very succinct. He wrote, Dear Sir, who is to blame for the, what is wrong in the world? I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. We're to blame. 
No one can deny, of course, that the fearful tragedy of Gaza has been caused by anything else but human sin, but that's only a tiny part of the problem, isn't it? Sin wrecks human lives. So what's to be done? One of the poems that I cherish and love most of all is George Herbert's Love, just simply called Love. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, Who bore the blame? Now that's not the end of the poem. But I want to leave it there because of that question. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? We know the answer, don't we? It's at the heart of our faith. The one who bore the blame is the Lord Jesus Christ. You know the most important task that I have? It's to proclaim freedom. It's to take the chains that bind us and tell you how those chains can be broken. Maybe there are people in the congregation this morning who look back and wish that something hadn't happened. Wish that they had made different choices. Isn't life all about choices? Of course it is. And as you get older, your choices narrow down. I'm sure he won't mind me telling you that my son on Boxing Day went running. I also had the choice of going running. <laughs> but I didn't make it. Our choices become more and more limited as the days go by. And maybe over the years, you've made wrong choices. Maybe there are relationships that you've messed up. And as you look back, you think, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I'd made more effort. I wish I'd learned to forgive. And know you not, says love. Who bore the blame? We blame God, don't we? When things go wrong, we say, it must be his fault. No. The suffering in the world is caused by human sin. And natural disaster? Well, natural disasters, friends, come because the whole of creation has been distorted by sin. 
I've told you before, haven't I, the sad and sorry tale of the new car that the people at Beaconsfield bought me. They bought me a new Vauxhall Astra. Now, you know the smell of a new car, don't you? It's a wonderful smell, and you think, this is really good. And what I shouldn't have done was, when I turned the ignition on, pump the accelerator. You're not supposed to do that with modern cars. You don't have to do that. I'm still in the days of yore when you pulled out the choke and sort of, you know. And in doing that, I introduced a fault in that wonderful new car that could never, ever be mended. We sent it back and back and back and back. And it was never put right. Sometimes I had to to, to turn the engine over six or seven times before it actually burst into life. And that was my fault. I had introduced an element of, of, of mechanical failure into that wonderful new car. And that's what sin has done to the whole of creation. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, the whole of creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. It's not only... Sin that spoils us, sin has spoiled creation. But who is to blame? We are to blame. And who bore the blame? Know you not, says love, who bore the blame? Christ Jesus bore the blame so that you and I could be forgiven. As well as gold for a king, incense for a priest, he was given myrrh, the sign of burial, the herb of grief. Over the manger hovered the shadow of the cross. It's no sin to ask, why does God allow suffering? It's merely unhelpful. Down through the centuries, Christians have confronted the same problem when one of our congregational missionaries, John Payton, had to dig the graves both of his only son and his wife. He wrote in his journal in 1859, I do not pretend to see through the mystery of such visitations, but I do know that God is my Father. And nearer to our own day, Dr. Helen Rosevear, many of you will know her name, who suffered appallingly in the violence of the Simba Rebellion in the former Belgian Congo in 1964, asked her fellow believers, do you trust God enough to allow him to allow you to suffer even if he never tells you why? Perhaps the closest anyone could ever get to understanding the heart of the matter is this statement, terrifying but wonderful in its simplicity. No questions, Lord. No questions. Only Amen's.